What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Oh shit, fam, it's semi-annual sale time at on it, which means that everything is as cheap as it's going to be all year. We do this sale twice a year, once at Black Friday and once here in April. So most everything is going to be 20% off. Apparel is going to be 30% off. We have some different door busters, like some kettlebells and some Street Fighter apparel at 40%, 80% off, 50% off fulvic minerals. It's an awesome opportunity to help us manage our warehouse, get rid of some of the things that we're overstocked on, that we order too many of, and allow you to take advantage of some of those optimization tools that you may not be familiar with. Give it a go. Give it a try. Of course, like everything we have, there's always a way to return it if you don't dig it. But it's a great opportunity to explore, figure out if there's anything else that you can use to make your life a little bit better. So I appreciate all the support. Anybody interested, go to onit.com slash sale and check out all the goodies. Semi-annual sale going on right now. Thanks, fam. Hamilton Morris is an incredibly interesting dude. Probably one of the few people on the planet that has tried more psychedelic drugs than I have, but comes at it from a completely different perspective than I do. Whereas I'm more experiential and metaphysical, he's more biochemical, but also brings that experiential element into it. If you haven't seen his show, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Vice, I highly recommend it. And while it takes us a little while to build a rapport and dive in, this podcast gets better by the minute, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Hamilton Morris, my man. Good to be sitting across from you here. I think, uh, as I was saying earlier, a lot of people have been looking forward to us having a conversation and talking about all the many copious substances available in the world for the human beings to ingest and allow our brain to meld with the chemicals and create some kind of magic or occasionally disaster, which I think probably we've both experienced. Possibly. (laughs) Possibly. Um, So one thing I got to say, man, is some of your episodes scare the shit out of me. Like the Haiti one, like I, I still kind of get nightmares about oh, wow. about the Haiti one. These are the deep cuts. This is old stuff. Yeah, yeah. That was a long time ago. That was yeah. two thousand nine. <laughs> um, but yes, that was a, a very strange time, and it was really an amazing experience being in Haiti because you recognize, especially in these more rural parts outside of the, the cities in Haiti, how if you have a, a totally pervasive magical belief system where there's no no semblance of the sort of rationality that you generally encounter in the United States it really allows almost anything to be possible mm-hmm. so you know when people read Wade Davis's book The Serpent and the Rainbow in the 1980s a lot of people said this is total bullshit there's no way this could ever happen and i think that's a totally valid objection from the perspective of someone who's never spent time in Haiti but you know, if you're just surrounded by people that that believe in flying, that believe humans can fly, genuinely believe it, believe in resurrection of the dead, believe in possession of both positive and negative entities, um, then just by virtue of that magical belief system, a lot of things that would otherwise be impossible become possible, at least in terms of what people will... uh, well, yeah, I mean, the psychosomatic effects of belief are truly incredible. And, like, you'll see things that defy, you know, logical Western empirical empirical reasoning. You know, like, for example, the guy who is eating the hot coals. You know, like, you probably shouldn't be able to eat hot coals 
off of a fucking, you know, you see, they were, they were like corn on the cob. They were like hot coal corn on the cob. Right. Oh, yeah. He was, he was going to town on those. And, uh, you know, or the flip side is that there's a lot of things that we can do and we're just too afraid to do it. You know, you're drinking from a glass bottle. You could probably chew up the break it and chew up the shards and you'd be okay tomorrow <laughs> and probably wouldn't actually injure you all that much, but you're right. not even going to do it because right. you don't want to risk it. You so you're saying we gain. all could eat hot coal corn on the cob. I think so. I think so. <laughs> I don't know, man. I might bet the don't side of, of me or you being able to eat that. I think there's, you know, there's some, there's a greater, I think there's a greater purview of belief onto the body that I think we probably give it credit in those ecstatic states allow you to, you know, signal different, you know, bodily responses that can be explained. But I just don't think we extend that like you have to be in a particular type of state in order to be able to do that without creating the kind of panic in your body that's going to create the kind of injury that would normally come you know what right. i mean oh yeah of course yeah <laughs> so then at the end of it, it's been a, it's been a long time since that episode of course so i mean i think ultimately the conclusion is that the datura has scopolamine in it right and the scopolamine and with the puffer toxin is kind of what creates this Haitian zombie effect or well, the, the same thing. We've heard about that in Africa too, actually, right? Right. Well, Wade Davis's basic idea was that it's it's sort of a, a number of different substances that are contributing to this effect. You have an initial zombification process that is mediated by the pufferfish toxin TTX. So somebody ingests this poison, it paralyzes them, and they because they live in this magical belief system or uh, what he calls a different cultural matrix, then um, they truly believe they have died and have been resurrected by a sorcerer because they're not thinking about it in terms of cause and effect and drug action in the ways that you and I might think about it. So, um, so, and then after this person has been resurrected, then they are given scopolamine periodically so that they're kind of maintained in this zombified, subservient state. I didn't see evidence for either of those things when mm-hmm. I was in Haiti. And uh, and I even had some strange experiences. I was on a boat with fishermen for a day, and I said, well, how do you prepare these puffer fish to remove the toxin? Because it's, it's specifically the reproductive organs where the TTX tends to accumulate in the ovaries and the testes. And, uh, and they were totally confused. They never even heard of a toxic puffer fish. Mm-hmm. It, it never had they I, you know i was trying to say it in different ways and it wasn't registering is it a possibility they kept insisting this fish is never toxic so hmm. um you know and i analyzed the zombie poison that i was provided in haiti and it didn't contain any kind of bioactive material that I, was detectable via gcms so uh, does that prove or disprove wade davis's hypothesis no it doesn't really it's just one small um, ultimately sort of poorly conducted field research experiment to see if I could, you know, find any independent confirmation of what he was looking for. And I didn't, but that doesn't mean that he fabricated what he said. It just, right. it, it means ultimately that assuming that he was being honest and, and he, I will, I will say that he's somewhat prone to at the very least exaggeration in some of his claims. Um, but assuming that the basic premise is honest, um, it doesn't mean that it was happening all the time. Sure. It means that maybe one person did it at least. And that I do believe is possible that one person could figure something like that out. Now, what is a, have you investigated the truth of the kind of those ideas of scopolamine being used to get people to go to the ATMs and empty out their bank accounts? And I, I think this was in, this was in Africa or somewhere in, somewhere else in South America. Well, there's a, in Colombia, um, the yeah. producer, that I used to work with actually produced a, a very successful vice piece about um, scopolamine that that uh, posited this idea that it's being used to manipulate people, enslave people, that prostitutes use it to zombify people and steal their money. Again, I wouldn't be surprised if it has happened. I do believe that it has happened. I don't think it's an epidemic. I don't think it happens frequently. I mean, this is one of the major issues with the way uh, most journalists cover drug-related issues is they mm-hmm. want they find something weird and interesting, and in order to make it uh, to justify reporting it to a large audience, they tend to suggest that it's a widespread phenomenon when it may be a very isolated thing. The same thing is also true of uh, there was a, a thing that was being written about a few years ago in I believe South Africa 
called flash blooding, where they claimed that people would take blood samples from people that had just injected heroin and then inject themselves with the blood because there was some residual heroin in it. Has that ever happened? Probably it's happened. I, right. I don't think it's a widespread epidemic in South Africa. I never met anyone in my time there. You've got to be really low on heroin to be going for that. Well, well because people plan. are rational and, yeah. and it won't work. Yeah. And you know, something that truly doesn't work um, has a tendency to be phased out of popular use. I would say that there are some exceptions. Things like astrology are pretty uh, <laughs> persistent in our cultural beliefs. But um, but yeah, for the most part, people are driven by things that, that produce results and that wouldn't work. So I can't imagine that it would ever become that widespread. But of course, it's very sensational and people love that sort of story. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I know that the... Um, so I've, you know, gone down to Peru and partaken in the many ayahuasca ceremonies and understood kind of the admixture plants and the toe plant which is a form of datura which is that kind of droopy flower it's mostly associated with sorcery and in a small amount you know it's sometimes mixed into the brew with good intention shamans but in larger amounts that's typically associated with like the more coercive side of things where you're trying to compel a response rather than allow the medicine to do its normal normal work and so i think I guess for me, the it became more logical understanding that in that cultural context that the detura plant was used for more coercive action, whereas something like the chacruna and the opiaje and the wambisa and some of these other admixture plants, the ayahuasca were more used in the medicinal context. So, but right. it's just interesting what the different psychoactive compounds, you know, kind of allow and and which way you can kind of bend them depending on the intention of whoever's providing it right yeah i think most people don't appreciate how versatile most of these compounds really are you know you watch something like that vice piece about scopolamine and you think oh this is an evil dangerous drug it's the craziest drug in the world and then Mm -hmm. i'll tell people well you know that same exact drug is sold over the counter in antiemetic patches for seasickness because it's really useful therapeutically. It's the kind of thing that your grandmother might use before going on a cruise. It's not, you know, exclusively some sort of substance that's used to uh, manipulate and enslave people by any means at all. Astronauts use it. It's very useful. And on top of that, it's actually a very useful antidepressant. And when it's added to ayahuasca, the antiemetic effect could um, prevent people from vomiting, even though I know that there's a whole cultural association with the The vomiting, the purge, and the cleansing. But um, if for some reason that were undesirable, the addition of these tropane alkaloids would probably suppress vomiting to some extent. It's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even really think about it in that way. I mean, I think a lot of times the you know, the the shamans and the plant doctors there, they speak in terms of spirits rather than in terms of chemistry. But that's just their that's just their fundamental understanding. You know, that's just their paradigm by which they understand things where we understand things in a different way. So they may describe it as, you know, a, a gentle spirit that warms the stomach, you know, and we're like, oh, it's an antiemetic, you know, with the, with the isolated compound being scopalamine. It doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. It's just that one's one way to describe it and the other is another way to describe it. Right. It depends on, you know, what the, what the ends are, what you're trying to achieve. I mean, I, ha- I had a really interesting friendship with this PCP chemist in Compton um, who tragically died when his lab blew up. But before he died, um, we would talk a lot about chemistry and he is in some sense, he was a chemist in that that was his job. That was where his money came from his entire adult life. He'd synthesized PCP and it was his livelihood, but he had no concept of what a molecule was, uh, had never taken a chemistry class and didn't understand on a molecular level, anything that he was doing. So he had this like folk chemistry understanding (laughs) that wasn't I could see why he said the things that he said because based on his observation of these reactions it made intuitive sense if you didn't understand wow. what's happening on an electronic molecular level that's pretty that's pretty wild so he just knew that knew how to do it and then created his own legend surrounding it which is pretty much what every indigenous culture has kind of had to do you have these things that all of a sudden you mix them you boil them you do them and you create what feels nothing short of magic you know, when you're ingesting a lot of these compounds, 
how the fuck do you describe that? You know, if you don't have the microscopes and all the, you know, the analysis that we have available. And even with the analysis, when it comes to actually describing the qualitative effects, we're no better than anyone else. We have no real tools. Maybe we have some surveys and things like that that can give a, an ed, a quantitative edge to the more mythological interpretations of the action of these substances. But for the most part, we're all doing the same thing. We're just describing what we experience. Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, and these experiences are so unique. It'd be like, imagine describing like eating too much wasabi or having an orgasm, like things that aren't drug related that are just crazy. Like it'd be really hard to describe that. And a lot of these different interactions with these psychedelics and plants feel in that category where it's almost impossible to adequately describe what you felt to another person who's never felt that same thing. Even if they have. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah. I, speaking of that, um, that salvia ceremony that you went through was probably one of the more beautiful ceremonies I've ever seen. And it looked like it created a pretty unique and powerful effect. I mean, a lot of times people just smoke it and freak out. I remember I go to head shop shows and there'd be like a, a bag of salvia and it would just say panic on it and have someone clawing their face. Like that was, that was how they were marketing it. Right. But what you were doing, eating those rolled up leaves in like a really beautiful traditional ceremony, um, seemed to create a much, much different effect than your typical salvia effect. What was that like? Yeah, it's really interesting because on one hand, I have a a totally laissez-faire attitude toward most people's drug use. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do anything. So when somebody says, oh, you're just doing it just to get high, I think, well, how do you know? How do you know you don't know anything about that person's intentions or what their internal experience was like? Don't dismiss another person's experiences just getting high just because they don't use the same words as you to describe it. You don't know anything about what they experienced. But so, so, so I try not to fall into that trap of saying, well, I do it in the right way and you do it in the wrong way and you have to do it respectfully and you have to do it this way you have to do it that way because we there are no rules we that just, said if you're smoking something that says panic on it, <laughs> there's probably a better way to do it but you might have a but transcendent experience from that's that. true i mean when i think back to my own experience in high school smoking salvia it was um you know in no way a prepared responsible experience you know i heard about it from a friend and they said oh there's this stuff it's legal it makes you trip balls for um you know just two minutes and then you're totally back to normal and i thought that's interesting and this is when you know wikipedia didn't exist when i was in high school arrowhead was really the only source of information it was not as even close to as easy as it is now to learn about something so you wouldn't even go to the internet to look it up it was Mm -hmm. just it might as well have been the middle ages and you go to a a head shop and get a little bag of this stuff and and I had no idea what I was getting into and I suppose and I'd never used a psychedelic before and I suppose that I was very lucky that for whatever psychological reason I happened to respond very positively to it and really enjoy and appreciate the experience um I can't tell you why that is but it simply was the case and I used it relatively frequently when I was in high school. And then around the time that I was in college, uh, Salvia had earned this reputation as a terror psychedelic that sends anyone that smokes it into a horrifying realm of, you know, you'd hear these stories, oh, I felt like I was being strangled by barbed wire. I felt like someone was sandblasting my face. I felt like I was in a gears being ground infinitely. Now, technically, it's not a psychedelic, right? It's a dissociative. Isn't that... Isn't that accurate as from a technical standpoint? From a, from a technical standpoint, it's a highly selective kappa opioid agonist. And whatever term you want to apply beyond that is sort of up to you. I, right. it, the word psychedelic is a nebulous word. It's a, You know it when you see it. You know it when you feel it. Do I think salvia is a psychedelic? I do. Do I think it's a dissociative? Also, to an extent, I do. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's pharmacologically different from any other drug that's in common use. So in some sense, um, it warrants its own term but that term doesn't exist so it's salvia it's salvia so you know so you're hearing all these horrifying experiences and i started to realize wow i'm i'm actually in a very very small minority of people that appreciate this substance and i don't know why but um but people tend to respond really negatively and in that sense i do think there's something to be said for going back to the traditional context because the way that i did it in oaxaca i i think that it 
emphasizes the value of what you're doing. And, and a lot of times these things aren't necessarily spiritual. They're very pragmatic, very simple. For example, having a, a relationship with a plant. If you are given a plant by a drug dealer or you order it on the internet, you don't know what it looked like when it was growing. You don't know mm -hmm. what kind of humidity requirements it has, how sensitive it is, what kind of insects eat it. But if you have to go find a plant in nature or grow a plant yourself, you develop an appreciation for that plant or that fungus or that animal. I guarantee it. And, you know, I think anyone that eats mushrooms that they have grown themselves will have a totally different experience just by virtue of having spent so much time thinking about the mushrooms, thinking about sterilizing the grain, inoculating the grain with spores, watching the mycelium colonize the grain, setting up the humidity just right for the fruiting of the mushrooms. All of this gives you a, a, a connection to the, and this isn't some kind of hippie supernatural connection it's just spending time with something in the same way that you, you could almost say the mushrooms were grown with love they're grown with love yes <laughs> it's something that you yeah. you've really spent time with so you have an appreciation for it so in the mazatec <clears throat> salvia ceremony you have to go into the forest and find the plants and you have to pick the plants in a certain way using uh, just your right hand and you have to you know, roll them in a certain way, and all you use this. tobacco to ask permission. That's kind of traditional in a lot of cultures. I did. The they didn't have that there in that one. Not in that one, but you know, there's there's a lot of mystery surrounding the these ceremonies, and there's not a lot of documentation. So it's possible that other people um, in other regions of Oaxaca do it differently. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these things, when you boil it down make you appreciate what you're getting into totally. a little bit more because totally. you're thinking about it. You're not, it's not someone handing you a bong at a party and saying, this is going to make you trip balls for five minutes. Again, nothing's wrong with that. But if people are having negative experiences, maybe this different way of doing it that involves uh, a prolonged period of thoughtful appreciation and preparation for the experience that you're about to have will really benefit the user. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. So you go through that whole process. You start eating the rolled up leaves and a feeling starts to come over you that seemed i've never had salvia before it's one of the one of the ones that i've missed on the list mm. maybe we should play psychedelic horse at the end of this and see. <laughs> i'm pretty sure you're gonna you're gonna win <laughs> but anyways that's one letter for me because i've never never tried that one um you know what was that what was the experience you know how did that how did that feel it seemed far different than a smoked salvia experience well, it's interesting because it's it's very different yet very much the same it's the best way to describe it would be to say that it is a smoked salvia experience that's extended dramatically extended so there's all these things that are rushing at you with a smoked salvia experience and you don't have time to appreciate or contemplate the characteristics of any of them. The same, it's analogous to ayahuasca and smoke DMT, mm -hmm. where smoke DMT is a flash of insanity yeah. of everything you can possibly imagine. Ayahuasca is also uh, a pretty dramatic flash, but at least it's extended enough that you can begin to appreciate the different components of the experience sure. in a more uh, careful way. So, so this is what happens when you chew the leaves. You start to realize, oh, it comes in waves. It's coming in waves, and it's rhythmic, and it and it has a, a this certain warmth to it. And there's a and my I'm starting to sweat, and it's filling my body with this feeling like I've just exercised, and uh, <laughs> and and you you appreciate each component, and um, and. Relative to something like DMT, I find that the, the closed-eye visuals are very simple, almost like a Frank Stella painting, these mm -hmm. sorts of you know, solid ribbons of color that are interweaving in a, in a geometric way. And it's very, very beautiful. Um, and I, I can you know, say with certainty that this is a very good way to experience salvia. I think most people wouldn't want to get into it because they have smoked it and they say, well, if you know, two minutes was like that, why would I ever want four hours of <laughs> right. it? But and that's how long the uh, that's how long the it arc was. It lasted over four hours. Wow, which is really remarkable because I've I've chewed dried salvia leaves years before that experience, and it worked, but it didn't last close to as long. And again, I think that there's very small and subtle aspects of the way these things are done traditionally that have a really major impact. For example, something as inconsequential as drinking water. You wouldn't even think about it. Of course, you drink water when you're thirsty. Why wouldn't you? Well. There's no water in this ceremony, and there's no water or very little water in Native American church peyote ceremonies mm -hmm. as well. What is the product of not drinking water? Well, the material clings to the 
mucous membranes in your mouth sure. and you have the buccal and sublingual absorption that might be achieved in a different way than if you took a sip of water immediately afterwards to wash down the bitter taste of the leaves. So suddenly, you know, my lips are in the video are totally stained with <laughs> like chlorophyll. The, like the penguin. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's a flattering comparison. <laughs> well, just with the fucking, the, the black coming off of his mouth. <laughs> not, not anything else, but that's what it, that's what it kind of reminded me of. Like it was just... It wasn't, it wasn't a flattering mouthpiece, but it was fucking in, an incredible, an incredible fucking example of somebody going through an ecstatic state that looked totally unique. Right. You know? Right. And again, like I said, I have this very laissez-faire attitude. I think, whatever, if you want to lay down, lay down. You want to be comfortable, be comfortable. Who's to say what is right or what is wrong? But I will say that there are certain uncomfortable things like not drinking water or not laying down or sitting in a chair and listening to someone sing in a way that you otherwise wouldn't that will have very interesting impacts on the experience, will change things. Yeah. Yeah, man, that makes a, it makes a lot of sense. I think going through the hardship of it, you know, they call it a lot of times trabajo work, you know, and making it the intention of it being work, the intention of it being a little bit harder, you know, peyote ceremonies are particularly challenging. A lot of times you'll be kneeling for the whole ceremony. You know, these physical obstacles can actually be a part of this process, you know, asserting your willpower, going for something intentionally at cost, you know, has a, certainly has an effect, you know, certainly has an effect with your mind and also that it's not happening to you, that this is something you're intentionally going for. You know what I mean? And I think that's a lot of times where these things go wrong. It's like, why did I do this? What am I doing? This is the wrong place. So, you know, all of these thoughts start to come in. Whereas if you every step of the way have traveled, have met, have found, are doing the ritual, you pretty much are ready <laughs> at that point. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Intention is always a big <clears throat> a big part of it. And the other thing is is dose. You know, in our in our way of thinking about drugs, often we think that more is better. And uh and one thing that I, I find very interesting about the way that San Pedro is traditionally used in Peru is that they intentionally prepare it in a less efficient way. You know, if you are making a San Pedro extraction, you drop the cactus into a blender, you homogenize it completely, you add some acid like lemon juice, and you strain it, and you can extract most of the mescaline from the cactus pretty crudely and simply that way. Um, but the way they do it, they slice it like a loaf of bread mm -hmm. and boil those slices. That is, without question, not the most efficient way to extract mescaline. And it results in a tea that is not very strong psychedelically. But for them, that's not the point. The point yeah. isn't to travel to the far reaches of consciousness. It's a health tonic. It's healing. It's about rejuvenation. It's not about, uh, you know, total deconstruction of all components right. of your personality right and especially if you're drinking it every night like, yeah. like those guys are yeah yeah um another interesting another interesting experience that probably there's not very many analogs to was when you ate all of those fish brains and this was another one of those things where i was like god damn i couldn't do that <laughs> you know like mad respect to you for just going in i think you ate like six or seven fish brains like but not really knowing exactly what was going to happen except for maybe night terrors <laughs> i was like he is a brave motherfucker like i've done a lot of crazy shit but i don't know if i would do that well that's another example of, of something that's you know very prevalent in the anthropological literature where you have reports of a plant that causes some bizarre vision and you don't know if it's because of this magical framework that they interpret the natural world through or if there's actually something pharmacologically active in that plant or in that animal you know there's reports of i believe the bone marrow of giraffes causing visions or there's reports of various ants having hallucinogenic properties or all sorts of i mean there's there's quite a few or or, or um various bioactive birds, and th that actually is a real phenomenon, uh, birds that bioaccumulate various toxins from their diet. So it's hard to figure out what is, you know, a projection of some belief about mm -hmm. that organism and what is actually a, a physical chemical component of that organism. Um, and, and that was very true of these fish in Madagascar. I do believe and did believe then that there's something physical to it because these these sorts of hallucinogenic fish poisonings have been reported independently 
all over the world in Hawaii, in Reunion, in Madagascar, um, in Mauritius, in France. So if so many different people across decades are reporting and in, um, in Chile as well, I believe, mm-hmm. um, are, are reporting this, then it's it seems totally plausible, especially given that there is such an amazing marine pharmacopoeia of all these different um, often serotonergic compounds that are found in soft corals and algae and things like that. So why why might it, it seems totally plausible? Why couldn't it happen? Why couldn't a fish accumulate some sort of bioactive compound mm-hmm. that is thermostable enough to survive the cooking process and people eat the flesh of the fish and then there yeah. you, there you have it. So um, it made sense. Uh, at the same time, I was a little bit unsure of what I was getting into because you talk to people and they say, oh, it causes visions. But when they talk about visions, do they mean it the same way I mean it when I mm-hmm. say visions? For me to say something causes visions, that's a big deal. It's not a subtle thing. Uh, but maybe for them, lots of things cause visions. Maybe, you know, I don't know, a cup of tea causes visions or they use the word visions in a different way. So um, it's really hard to say what happened. You know, we analyzed the fish samples, the problem with chemical analysis of any thing like a fish is that there's so many chemicals in a fish. I mean, everything yeah. is chemical. Yeah. So like if you're, you know, you have all these amino acids, all these just, you know, various degradation products of all of these things, it's just endless. I mean, literally tens of thousands of compounds. So who's to say what is what? And then with just one experience of me eating the fish, and I was very jet lagged at the time, it's impossible to conclude anything from it. But it's still so provocative. You know, I, I, uh, I make these pieces because I want to learn about a phenomenon, but it's often by the time I finish, I feel like I'm just even starting to identify the problem that I was setting out to solve. Well, I mean, it's such a deep, such a deep thing. I mean, you could study San Pedro your whole life and really still only scratch the surface of truly understanding that or study ayahuasca your whole life or psilocybin. You know, the the levels just are like fractal almost is how deep you can go with these different compounds and different plants as the interaction starts to change with the human, you know, the human mechanism as well. Yes. And that's the, that's the thing. And you see that, I mean, you see people who've dedicated their life to one or two different practices or plants and, you know, they'll say the same thing. Like there's always another layer. Those they're still learning, still learning, still learning. That's pretty, uh, that's the unique thing about this. You know, whenever you think, oh, yeah, I've got this, you know, no big deal. I've done all the plants. I'm fine. Something else will come through and you'll be like, whoa, I don't know what the fuck I'm getting into. You know, like this is a whole new territory. Right. And of course. Yeah. It was interesting. The um, so one of the another one of the coolest moments that I can recall um, was when you did the toad ceremony. Sapo, the, the Bufo Agarius, the Colorado River Toad. Yeah. And it was a gnarly, it was a gnarly juxtaposition of the guy right before you who had that really dramatic kind of physical, you know, explosion in the water. And it kind of freaked me out that they were having that in the water as well. Like I didn't really understand what that why that seemed like extra risky to me with like rocks and water and people thrashing around. Right. Yeah, that was an interesting experience because I had gone to Mexico primarily to simply film the toads. Um, that was it. I wanted to film them mm-hmm. and talk to some shamans in the area. And then I'd heard about this this shaman, Dr. Jerry, who is a, a gynecologist. And I thought, well, that's a, a pretty interesting story that this someone left gynecology to be a full-time toad venom shaman. I've got to meet this guy. And... He immediately said yes and said, and I have two people that are such beautiful users of this toad medicine that they're going to fly to Mexico with one day's notice on their own dime because they want to be a part of this project. And I thought, all right, well, these people are the masters. These people are really, really, really serious about what they're doing. Um, But I had smoked 5-MeO-DMT maybe around 2008 and had Mm -hmm. a very, very negative experience. Um, you know, I and and I knew what I was getting into. I'd read, unlike the salvia 
uh, experience in high school. I'd read countless reports. I'd read T. Call. I knew that this was considered by many people to to be the strongest psychedelic in nature. Mm-hmm. And I also knew that it had a, a potential to be toxic in a way that m- things like DMT don't. So I, I did know what I was getting into, and I didn't do it in a irresponsible way. It was, it was a controlled environment. It was in my apartment. It was dark. I was by myself. There were no interruptions. But as soon as I smoked this stuff, it just went wrong. It went wrong immediately. And the feeling was what I imagine it feels like to simply be poisoned and be dying of a you know cyanide poisoning. Like your every cell in your body is shutting down and it's fucking terrifying wow and uh, and are you certain about the compound like that it was clean and it was the right compound and yes, everything yeah yeah and uh and and uh you know and i and i tried to reason with myself you know at the beginning you know and say just let go if you're dying you're dying if you're dying you're dying just let go there's nothing you can do if you're gonna die then now it's pretty much it. sound advice for any psychedelic right. experience right, right. you're gonna die so you're dying so die but then it wasn't working i couldn't I couldn't do it, and I was would return to this self hatred of "You're a fucking idiot! You're you're dying for this, <laughs> for just to use this Chinese chemical that that came from the internet that was later analyzed and confirmed to be of the the correct identity." But um, at the time, you know, yeah. it could be something else. And what am I thinking? What what was I possibly hoping to gain from doing this? What kind right. of what? possible positive result could there have been for me doing this cycles of self-hatred and uh and then came out of it and i was okay i was shaken up but i you know i didn't spend uh, i think that's a huge difference between when you do it something on your own that you don't know and when you're in like a guided ceremony like if you're with somebody who's a guide who's done this a thousand times like you don't have that doubt like what the fuck is this did i just do poison am i gonna die you know like there's this constant reassurance that just removes that whole area of self-doubt you know from your mind to a certain you can still think you're going to die but it's usually not that i got poisoned it's usually something specific that's coming up a vision that you have to work with or something like that but when you don't know then you're like did i do too much is this the wrong shit is my what the fuck is happening right right and typically i'm not the sort of person that that falls into those thought loops because I'm a very careful person. I weigh sure. everything up very carefully. I analyze everything in a, in a real way, not with some kind of color metric reagent, but with GCMS. And and uh, and so I have a certain confidence that it is really a luxury and a privilege to be able to know those things about what you're using. But, um, but this was, I believe, the chemical, not necessarily the circumstances, although I, I will never know because the two are sort of inseparable. In any case, my first experience was dramatically negative and frightening. Mm-hmm. So that's sitting in the back of my mind. Um, just, you know, and, and I'm, I'm the sort of person that tends to respond really well to psychedelics for whatever reason. Like I said, salvia has been nothing but enjoyable and revelatory for me. So I started to think, well, maybe you should learn from the past. If you had a really negative experience with this, Maybe that's a sign that you don't respond well to this chemical and yeah. you're a fool if you don't learn from that fact. So what is wrong with you if you're going to go and do it again after that experience? But then at the same time, I'd keep hearing these stories that people would tell me about transcendent experiences where you're rocketed into the cosmos, surrounded by love, and it makes you a better person. And I think, well, that would be pretty nice as well. I think I could go for a little bit of that right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then on top of that, my friend Casey Hardison, who's a an LSD chemist who was in prison for a decade and got out and was kind of uh, going through a rough period, smoked 5-MeO-DMT with one of his friends while they were both drunk. And the friend asphyxiated on his vomit and died. And when my friend Casey came out of the sort of dissociative or whatever you call this this experience because you're not there for a little while sure. you're somewhere else when he sure. came out of it his friend was dead and Fuck. and that was it so you know that's again uh, it wasn't a direct pharmacological effect of the drug but the fact that um he was drunk and had had a meal beforehand and wasn't being watched by someone meant that he died um after smoking the stuff so this is all in the back of my mind negative experience friend of a friend just 
died smoking this stuff and I was talking to the gynecologist shaman about it and saying, you know, I have some some major reservations. That line, I hope that line becomes like a meme. I was talking to the gynecologist shaman about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I was saying, I have some really serious reservations about this because of a negative experience in the past and because of this tragic death of a of a friend of a friend. He was saying, oh, yes, yes, it was so terrible that he died. No one expected that. And uh, and I was like, yes, no one expected. He was like, he was, he was the son of a shaman. No one would have thought that he, of all people, would have died. And I was saying, I didn't realize that he was the son of a shaman. And he's like, oh, you're talking about the recent death in South America? And I was saying, no, I'm talking about the recent death in North America. <laughs> There's another recent death that I don't even know about. <laughs> yeah. So so all this is putting me into a, into a, a kind of agitated state surrounding using this venom. I'm genuinely uncertain about whether or not I'm going to do it. And uh, and then when the time comes, the person before me had that incredibly violent response to it where he was uh, thrashing around. And from the perspective of an external observer, it looked like a negative and dangerous experience. I mean, a lot of people looked at that and, and thought, that is totally undesirable. And that happens, you know, talking to, because I've worked with 5-MEO providers and shamans, and that that seems to happen with a regular percentage of people. Like, that's not a true aberration. You know, like, that is like a, a reliable percentage of humans who have a very agitated physical response that can turn, you know, just kind of thrashing and wild like that to a little bit more focused and, like, aggressive you know, and that's a, that's this weird thing about that medicine, you know, it's just a, an interesting one. Yeah. And so then watching that, I thought, I don't know. And, you know, of course, it's also very vulnerable to use these sorts of things on camera because you're exposing a part of yourself that even you don't know about. And, right. you're, and you're telegraphing it to millions of people who will judge you with nothing but the harshest <laughs> imaginable criticism. Yeah. Who knows what sorts of things I might reveal in that state? And so I was really, you know, feeling a lot of conflicting emotions when I when I went to do it. And I was very afraid. I um, and the experience ended up being so more positive than I could have possibly imagined. Um, And I was extremely it was so positive that people didn't believe it was real, which was another thing (laughs) I never expected. You know, why on earth would anyone fake such a thing? Yet that actually became the predominant response. I was getting all these messages from enraged people saying, oh, I used to have a lot of respect for you, Hamilton. I had a lot of respect. And then I saw that you faked that toad venom experience and all my fucking respect went out the window. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's funny. You were just lying there just saying love, love over and over again. And I remember really just smiling watching that because I actually have a recording of the time. I wasn't video, but I have an audio recording. And I was basically, I was laughing and then and going oh fuck oh my god and then i just started singing like love 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 it's just overwhelming feeling somatically where every cell of your body transmutes into that feeling of like capital l love and you're like there in it in this like love orgasm of your whole body mind soul everything and that was uh you know it seemed like i could see another fellow person going through that same thing because it, it was really cool to kind of watch that and draw the parallels between you know my own experience and, and watching what was coming through you a person from a totally different background totally different place totally different you know situation but it came back to that to that word and what that word fundamentally means and how we transcribe that as a symbol it's really the only good way you know to describe what that feeling is right and it's so interesting because I, I do consider myself a very cynical person. I try not to be cynical, but it's it's my natural tendency. Sure. And, you know, the, the current ecological and political environment doesn't help all that much. So I, I don't think of myself as the sort of person that would say those sorts of things. I mean, it surprised me to see what had happened. I had to I rewatch the video several times and, and kind of, you know, thought this is so strange that this is what comes out of me love something that um i don't even really consider necessarily a core part of my consciousness you know Mm -hmm. it's not it's it's not like a i mean i guess it is something that's deep inside me but it's not something that i thought was deep inside me and um and it's so 
amazing. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing. I don't know what to say about it. Um, you know, I, I part of me wants to say everyone needs to have this experience because it it did something so remarkable for me. But at the same time, it's it is a bit of a gamble because I also had one of the most negative experiences of my life on the exact same substance. I mean, I truly believe that five meo DMT above almost anything else has something very special about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, with all the psychedelics, I've done ayahuasca maybe 17 times and, you know, Wachuma or San Pedro seven times, a bunch of these different deep, you know, plant medicine, NNDMT many, many times. And then doing the 5-MEO, it was almost like I remembered once again, like the the awe and mystery and wow of doing a psychedelic. It was like, oh, shit. You know, I like I had categorized it like, okay, here's a psychedelic and I'm comfortable there. And, you know, here we go trucking along. And then that hits and it's just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this right. is something completely, completely in a different realm. Well, it really cuts to the chase yeah, in a way that other things don't. Um, you know, I, I again, you know, I call it a psychedelic. I would hesitate to even use that term for it because yeah. my experience was devoid of hallucinations. What was so interesting yeah, about it was what, not happened, visual. what happened to me is I smoked the material. There's maybe a little bit of that sort of like chromatic aberration that you get on like bent or on like a cheap plastic lens where there's like a little bit of color bleeding. Then I white it out. Then it was just pure I have white. no I have no visual recollection of anything, which is the it's super unusual. Usually, like I can record all vision, but there was literally, yeah, whited out. I guess is the right word, but I don't even remember the color white. It was like the absolute absence of any visual information, like 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 zero. And I guess for me, I think whited out. Like I'm actually looking at a white room or something with like no corners. But like I don't, I didn't see white. I didn't see black. Like if you do a boga, like a lot of times you'll see black. You know, and then you'll see images come into the black and then you'll see visions. But like it'll be like looking at a seamless shoot room that's just all black, cave black or something like that. Like, okay, black. I got it. And then visions are white. You know, (laughs) I got that, too. I've seen that, you know, many times. This was like just no visual information. Zero. No smell. No sight. I mean, there was music kind of going, you know, as in as part of the ceremony that we could I could kind of that sound somehow filtered and melded into it, but it was really just a feeling. It was just like expressed through my cells in a way that I truly believe that my body couldn't create that feeling. My brain couldn't create that feeling on its own. And that to me made it the more, the most otherworldly of anything else. Like I felt like it would be impossible for my machine to produce that unless I was plugged into something else. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it did things to me that I genuinely, I don't know how it's even possible for, and I won't even, I'm not even sure that they're good. For example, I, in the maybe 10 days after the experience, had a nebulous sense of the existence of God. I'm a pretty hardcore (laughs) agnostic atheist person, and I wasn't, you know, running out to join a religion or to follow this. It was just an irrational sense in the same way that people, um, you know, just have, I suppose, irrational senses that there's uh, people in their walls or something like that or listening devices all over their house. It was an irrational belief in the existence of God. And I, and I was aware that it was irrational. It wasn't logically derived. It was, it's irrational if you hadn't just felt what you <laughs> felt. You know, like love and God, I think, to me but, are synonyms. But it wasn't know? even that. It wasn't, it wasn't this experience, therefore God. It was just this experience and now God. <laughs> and uh, And so... And, uh, and and I sort of started to realize, you know, of course, all of these things are biologically and neuroanatomically mediated. And you hear these stories about someone with a tumor on their frontal cortex that suddenly becomes a pedophile and they remove the tumor and they're not a pedophile anymore. And I had the same kind of feeling like, wow, you just introduce this chemical, this serotonergic chemical into my mind. Suddenly, I do believe in God. <laughs> and then it faded after about 10 days. And now I can't even imagine what it was like. But I know for a fact that that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously the word God has so much baggage on it. It's like whatever started as a whale is now all barnacle. And so, you know, you're just looking at this mass and, you you know, who knows? You can't even use that word anymore. Right. I try not to even touch it. because it's, And it's also not very important to me. It's not something that I'm like struggling with religion. It's just not even that important. I'm yeah. more interested in, in chemistry. I don't need to deal with that. But but it hit me. It hit me irrationally. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the only reason I even say it out loud is because it's, I think, a really amazing example of the power of these things to change hardened belief structures. And again, I don't know that that was a positive change. It was simply a change. And if it can do that, I think that it could do all sorts of other things. In the same way that with Ibogaine, when you talk about Ibogaine, everyone says, well, that's the drug that gets heroin addicts off of heroin. Well, that's not what Ibogaine does. Ibogaine is simply so powerful Mm -hmm. that it can do that, but it can do many other things as well. That's just one of the most prominent examples of its power. Yeah. Yeah, ibogaine is a, an interesting one. I've I've done ibogaine three times now, and most of the time, it's the most hellish experience that I've ever had. You know, like have you have you experienced that? I didn't see any. Uh, I don't I know if you did an episode. I've, on I've used low dose ibogaine many, 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 many times. Yeah, I think you know there was sort of a micro dosing craze where everyone is using mushrooms and things like that. And I think that uh, mushrooms are not particularly well suited to micro dosing, but ibogaine is. I've heard that. Yeah, I've only done full flood doses, which is, I mean, it's hell. It's like truly the most hellish experience, except for the last time that I did it. And it was just like beautiful and sweet and like not somatically hellish. And the the crazy thing about Ibogaine is... And this was the Iboga bark? Iboga bark once extracted Uh into, so like traditionally extracted once. And I don't know how they do that exactly. Was this in... Africa? Or? It was in Costa Rica. Okay. They offer it. It's legal in like Canada, Costa Rica, course, yeah. a couple different places. So, um, yeah. So, and it's a, it's funny because, you know, obviously I'm not addicted to heroin, but the, the mental clarity that came with it, you know, cause you have, first of all, your, you know, your heartbeat is racing a little faster. It's like a stimulant in some, in some elements and then a psychedelic in some elements. You probably know the pharmacological structure of it, but it hits like multiple different oh pathways. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it is the most pharmacologically complex drug that I am aware of. There's almost nothing that it does not do. And, <laughs> right. and people, again, people call it a psychedelic, a classical psychedelic. If you actually look at the spectrum of its affinities for different receptors in the brain, its most potent affinity is for the NMDA receptor. It's more of a ketamine type dissociative than it is mm-hmm. a classical serotonergic psychedelic, although it also has the 5-HT2A effect. It's also a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It releases this protein GDNF, which is like considered one of the most prominent therapeutic targets for treatment of Parkinson's disease. It has uh, an impact on nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Um, and I guarantee I'm... Oh, and then of course it has a kappa opioid effect like salvia as well as a mu opioid effect, particularly from the first pass metabolite nor ibogaine. And oh, I'm probably missing <laughs> other ones. I mean, it, it does... It's you, you can barely... And it has sigma activity. You can barely name a, a site that this thing doesn't bind to and uh and so how do you even describe something like that it's it's so hard because it's doing so many things and it's so multivariant sometimes it's visual sometimes it's not sometimes it's physical so but at the end there's nothing that feels more like a total hard reset and i think that's why you know they use it for addiction so and it's so effective because I liken it to being like an ant on a tuning fork and like everything in your body just gets lit up to that. All the receptors gets lit up to that extreme level. And then it just kind of washes out old patterns, old psychological patterns, old physical patterns, old things that might have been stuck and gives you an opportunity to just start clean from a fresh slate, it feels like. But it's really, really challenging or sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's really beautiful i remember on this last time i smelled a a white rose and it was probably the most beautiful vision i've ever seen of a fractally a million petals unfolding from the single one of all of these roses and i was there with this bird's eye view of a million petals unfolding in this fractal rose flower as i smelled the scent and the scent turned into the vision and it permeated the entire space like that was pretty fucking beautiful but every time is just different depending on where you are what what material it is what state you're in you know you'll never be able to line it up exactly right and recreate the same thing yeah it's it's really really amazing stuff i would you know i uh i think i like many people sort of dismissed it based on thinking that it was this drug for opioid addicts and thinking well i'm not i don't have any use of opioids i don't have any problems with opioids it's not my thing i don't need to use that and then 
started talking with more and more people about it and realized that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you can use this for all sorts of things. They were trying to use it as a performance-enhancing drug for athletes in Canada. And I knew a bodybuilder in New York who used to take Ibogaine when he was working out at the gym. And I thought that was so hilarious that, <laughs> that he would take Ibogaine and use anabolic steroids. And it just seemed like the most obscure, ridiculous uh, yeah. thing to do. Who would ever do that? And now I totally get it. I yeah. totally understand where he's coming from because it gives you power. It gives you a sense of physical fortitude and strength that will help any person who's struggling with almost anything, whether it's neurodegenerative disease, opioid addiction, whatever. Yeah. And I think one of the key things to remember, a lot of the people who've had bad experiences, because I've had people, I've heard of people, you know, going into a coma. I've heard of people having some really challenging experiences with the boga is minimum effective dose. You know what I mean? Like always write, be careful, minimum effective dose. You don't need a fucking massive flood dose like you've like you've experimented with. You know, try the microdose first. Right. You know, and, chill. And, and the issue with the flood dose is is it's necessitated by prohibition. So, you know, our, our current treatment paradigm is you're addicted to heroin or whatever, and you realize uh, this is a problem. I've got to stop. I need a solution. So what do I do? I go to an Ibogaine clinic in Canada or in Mexico. Mm -hmm. But you live in the United States, so you're, you're not going to live there. So you want to get the most bang for your buck. You're only there for three days. Give me a flood dose. Give me as much as possible, and then I'm going back to where I came from. <laughs> but that's not the ideal situation yeah. at all. You want to have support after the experience and you want to have the ability to use it again periodically to help you if the cravings return i mean i think that um that this flood dose paradigm is a product of prohibition more than anything else and that if people could do it in a more responsible way it would be lower dose which is safer because you know there's a Oh, that's the other receptor that it hits, unfortunately, is the HERG channel. There's a voltage-gated potassium ion channel that regulates the rhythm of the heart, mm -hmm. and it blocks that channel and causes arrhythmias, and that's what's responsible for the cardiotoxicity of Ibogaine. Well, it's, it's a dose-dependent problem. The less you take, the less likely sure. you are to suffer arrhythmias. So again, you can avoid that problem by not doing these flood doses. And, and that's not to say that there isn't something to these flood doses. Yeah. I've never had one, so I can't speak to that. But I know that in Gabon, you know, in the Bwiti religion, that's something you do once in your life. That's, you know, they call it breaking open the head. That's an initiation ritual that you do once, maybe twice. And then mm. after that, it's all low dose. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that that's something that... Yeah, I think like the literal max that anybody ever does is like five times in a life. <laughs> that's like for the shaman, yeah. you know, will take five flood doses in their whole lifetime. You know, whereas like a San Pedro shaman or an ayahuasca shaman might drink thousands of cups. Right. You know what I mean? It's just a different... It's a different ball game, yeah, for sure, and and I think, you know, it, it is. I think you make a good point about the the reaction from this prohibitionary world. You know, like we've had. To, it's actually the same with drinking. I think even binge drinking amongst eighteen to twenty one year olds, if you look statistically, a lot of that is due to the prohibition of alcohol for that age group. You get it. You want to get as fucked up as possible because you're not supposed to be doing it and you want to get the most experience you can rather than if you're in Europe and you can just have a glass of wine and drink like a normal like a normal person. There's no rush. There's no rush. You don't have to fucking – they don't have all these beer bongs and fucking <laughs> you know, shotgunning beers and all, all this stuff elsewhere. Not nearly as much because you're, you're just around it and it's just you can – naturally and healthily assimilated into your life rather than you know run into amsterdam and eating fucking 10 grams of truffles or something like that you know because well it's illegal now right exactly and it, it creates this you know this sort of paternalistic government creates the illusion that it's protecting us in some way so you think okay like these things are illegal because they're dangerous but as soon as they're legal then they're not dangerous anymore the opposite is also true so you'll hear this ridiculous misconception that because something is not illegal in the United States, it must be safe. We need to get out of that mentality yeah. of legality having anything to do with pharmacology or toxicology. The two are totally separate. I mean, ideally, they wouldn't be totally <laughs> separate, but in the world we're in, they fucking for sure are. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's like maybe the government thinks they are because they would assume that alcohol is like not toxic and that LSD is, but they're just, you know... Yeah, I mean the fact that marijuana is Schedule One and the hydrocodone and Percocet are are you know not you know and they're available. Like obviously, when you look at the amount of deaths associated, the overdoses associated, come on, 
yeah come on let's let's get real here and see that there's something something in the system that's not actually accurately talking about what's happening well the whole scheduling system is just a total disaster um you know and i think a lot of it has to do with people not taking responsibility for themselves you know right now there's an enormous amount of news coverage of the opioid epidemic in the united states and uh, a typical attitude to have toward this epidemic is to wag your finger at pharmaceutical companies wag your finger at doctors and say that it's their fault that this or that is happening but you know i think we have to get out of this mindset of blaming other people for our problems with drugs because you know if you want freedom if the goal of this game is to be free then you have to take responsibility for yourself you mm-hmm. have to stop blaming other people yeah no i, I agree with that so we talked a lot about you know a lot both of us have had an incredibly positive experience with psychedelics but i think it's worthwhile to just put this caveat out there like it is always playing with fire and it is always super important that you're being as careful as possible choosing the right dose, the right time, with the right people surrounding you, and just be extra careful, extra responsible. And if you're not called to it, you don't feel like you really want to do it, don't do it. Don't do it to show off. Don't do it for like a badge of honor. You don't get your fucking ayahuasca Eagle Scout badge <laughs> for just doing it, you know? Like wait till it's really the right time in the right place. Right. If not even for your sake, for everyone else, because you can ruin it for everybody totally. by behaving irresponsibly. That sort of thing happens with drugs all the time. One person that makes a dumb mistake with some obscure chemical like 2CT7, and then scientists can't research it potentially ever again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not just about you. <laughs> it's about it's about the rest of us trying to take drugs too. And I think that's important. So what's what's next for you, man? More episodes? Is there more things to explore? What uh, what what's coming up? Yeah, the the show did really well. Uh, both the first and second seasons were the most watched show on Viceland. So people really, I think, have an appetite for this sort of material. People are really curious about these things, and they want to learn more. And uh, there's a part of me that would love to do it forever. I was offered a third season. I have. Uh, declined at this point because I want to make a movie now but mm. um, and I want to write and focus on some other things but I may do a third season or may do a one-off thing at some point in the future um, but you know I'm, I, I'll always be interested in this subject and I'll always be you know doing lab work as well and, and contributing to this world in any way that I can yeah well coming from a fan you're the perfect fucking guy for the job you know cool. and watching you go through all of these experiences with this kind of very unbiased and yet courageous and open-minded um way that you went through it i think it's done the world a lot of good man and uh and i really appreciate you for that and that was i'm really fucking glad you undertook this journey and and whatever whatever way or shape or form you know that first good salvi experience maybe that set you on the path or whatever that was i think uh we're all grateful that it took you that way thank you yeah, absolutely, man. Anything, uh, where can people find you? Anything you want to point out to yeah. besides the episode? Yeah, a lot of people have trouble finding my show, but it's easy to stream on Amazon and iTunes. Um, I really recommend watching the the first and second season of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, the TV show, as opposed to the material that's freely available on YouTube, simply because it's better, better production value, more work went into it. I'm more proud of it. I think it's uh, better work. So that mm-hmm. would be what I recommend everybody start with. Yep. And if you're interested in the science, I periodically publish scientific articles and peer-reviewed journals, and you can check that out as well, although it might be a little bit dry for most people. Do you think there's, you know, do you think there's still undiscovered compounds that could have really significant, you know, benefit? Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. I think we don't even, it might take a while to discover them, but you look at a structure like ibogaine. I mean, something like DMT, it's a simple derivative of tryptophan. It's mm-hmm. that maybe humans would discover. In fact, they did discover it before they ever found it in nature. Mm-hmm. But ibogaine, there's no way we would have discovered that. The same is true of the, you know, the lysergamide backbone of LSD. There's no way we would have discovered that intricate structure. So there's so many things to be discovered in the natural world still. There was a, a, a salvin RNA type chemical that was isolated from a 
type of mushroom called Rhodocalibia maculata. This could be a, a new psychedelic. No one's ever tried it other than mice. Um, <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of things in the ocean that haven't been adequately tested. And on top of that, there's chemists around the world exploring the structure activity relationship of, you know, these known scaffolds for psychedelic drugs like the salvinorin A type compounds, phenethylamines, tryptamines, and so on. So, so there's no question new things will be discovered. Do you think that there's, what do you think about like direct, you know, neuromanipulation like um, through, through other means, like non-ingestible, but like just basically altering the neurochemistry through that, you know, kind of God helmet concept. What do you give credence to that idea? I've never done it myself. I've certainly read about it. You know, it's funny because when people talk about, you know, transcranial electromagnetic stimulation or something like that, it's always considered very high tech. Like, oh, it's so high tech. We're using magnets to create a drug experience. I think drugs are high tech. I think that is the <laughs> yeah. ultimate technology. We're building little tiny carbon sculptures that are able to enter your body and bind to these receptors in the brain, what could be more amazing than that is nanotechnology. There's nothing even close to that. So maybe we'll right. achieve something like this with a magnet or electrodes <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, plants figured it out. Drugs. Drugs are a really good way of doing this. And I believe always will be. Plants are a technology. Already. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen to that. All right, my brother. Thanks for jumping on the show. That was awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. And thank you, everybody, for all the support for Own the Day. We're a USA Today bestseller, a New York Times bestseller. We got up to number four on Amazon, number three on Audible. And I just want to really send out my appreciation to all you who are sending me in messages and going through the practices, doing the work to actually own your day and own your life. So you guys are the fucking best. I love you. I really appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And of course, if you can, leave a review on the podcast, leave a review on the book. That's super helpful for me. And I look forward to talking to you guys next week.